turn in your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 42, page 1124. 1124 in your pew Bibles this morning. So, we have been looking at the book of Acts for quite a long time, and now we are shifting gears in this season of Lent. We're looking uh, back to the Old Testament, or as I recently heard it referred to as the First Testament. It's, uh, it's not old, it's not an antique, it's not something that doesn't apply anymore. It's uh, the First Testament of God's Word to us. And we're going to look uh, particularly at the end of the, the book of Isaiah through this series, and um, a majority of it looking at what, what are called the servant songs in Isaiah. And this is the first, uh, the first one of those that we find, Isaiah chapter 42, and uh, we'll be reading this morning the first nine verses. Again, it's page 1124, Isaiah chapter 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. This is what the Lord God says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. And this is the word of the Lord. Indeed. So, we hear, friends in Christ, more and more every day about all the scams that are out there. The scams that, uh, that take us innocent uh, bystanders. Um, I heard of one this past week. Someone from Amazon, or pretending to be from Amazon, called, uh, called a woman on the phone and said that uh, someone had broken into her Amazon account, her credit card was compromised, all of that kind of stuff. They transferred her to what they called the fraud department, <clears throat> and uh, she talked to another woman there who explained the whole situation. She was, um, in this woman's words, very uh, authoritative, and um, she gave this woman her badge number and, and the whole deal. And as this conversation went on and, and on, finally the woman asked, well, how do I know this isn't a scam? 
And the woman replied, well, I gave you my badge number, as if, as, as if that's, that's enough, right? Um, having a badge or a badge number really doesn't mean anything, does it? I mean, not unless there is a legitimate organization that you're aware of that you know that sort of stands behind the badge, right? That's connected to the badge. Otherwise, the badge itself has no meaning whatsoever. And that got me to thinking. When we say that we are are Christians, what does that mean to the people around us? Does that have any meaning whatsoever? I mean, it kind of implies that we in some way, shape, or form are connected to Jesus, right? But if, if they don't know Jesus, then they can't really know if we're legitimate or not. And unless I'm connected to the true Jesus, therefore, that name of mine, Christian, well, it's sort of meaningless, just as meaningless as that scammer's badge. This Lenten season, we have, we have the opportunity to get to know Jesus a little bit better and in a little different way. We get to know him from, from behind, from the prophets, from what God told Israel to look for in a Messiah, what their Messiah would be, what he would be like. And we get to know him from the inside, what's, what's in his heart, what makes him tick, what motivates him. <clears throat> That's what we're going to be doing this season of Lent, trying to get to know Jesus better as he's introduced to us by God through the prophet Isaiah. And in the meantime, or, or as well as that, we're also going to ask the question, are we really his representatives? Or are we representing something else, someone else? All right, so let's Let's examine this. What I'm going to do this morning is just sort of walk us through at least the first four verses of this text. So if you want to open your Bibles, that might be helpful. You don't have to. But we're going to start with verse 1, all right? Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Now, We need to begin this morning with a question that's always asked about this text and about these servant songs, and that is, who is the servant that Isaiah is speaking about or that God is speaking about? And there's actually quite a bit of debate on what the answer to that question is. Some people see the servant as a leader of God's people, so a king or a prophet or someone like that. Others see the the servant as the composite people of Israel. And so the whole people of Israel are the servant. They've been called by God. They've been given that task of being a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles, right? Um, and so there are these different people or, or um, yeah, different people that fit that role of the servant. And that's just sort of the way prophecy works, isn't it? Um, Prophecy can apply to different people at different times. But Christians have always seen the ultimate fulfillment of the servant as Jesus Christ. So we have always seen the servant as Jesus. Why? 
Well, a couple of reasons. Matthew, in his gospel, he makes it quite clear to us. In fact, in Matthew chapter 12, when speaking of Jesus, Matthew actually quotes the first four verses of Isaiah 42, applying them to Jesus. We'll hear a little bit more about that in a moment. But Matthew also refers to, to this text in, in his account of Jesus' baptism. When Jesus is baptized in Matthew chapter 3, and I want us to think about that for a moment. Um, <clears throat> listen to how Matthew speaks at, uh, or how he tells the story of Jesus' baptism. There is a, a voice from heaven who says, This is my son whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. Right? Now think about these two texts. Think about what we just read from Isaiah and what we hear from God's mouth in Matthew chapter 3. This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Okay? What we heard in Isaiah is this is my servant. This is the one in whom I delight. Same, same concept, even the same words. On this one, I will pour out my spirit, God says in Isaiah. And what happens at the baptism of Jesus? The heavens open, right? And a dove descends and alights on Jesus. It's the spirit commissioning Jesus for his work. And then the father says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am so well pleased. Okay, this is a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 42. But I want you to notice one other thing here, and that is when Matthew quotes this text in, in the story of Jesus' baptism, he doesn't quote it in its exact form as it comes in Isaiah 42. He doesn't say, this is my servant whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. What does he say? He says, this is my son whom I love. And that is actually a quote from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a royal psalm. And in that psalm, it's the high king of heaven who speaks, and he refers to his anointed one, the one who he will appoint as king, with the words, you are my son. You are my son. And I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You see the same themes here. In other words, Matthew takes these two images, okay? One of a king, you are my son, and he puts it together with this image of a servant. Okay? You are my servant. And he applies both of them to Jesus. Servant and king. Both apply to Jesus. And Matthew here is not changing. He's not altering what Isaiah is telling us. Rather, he's highlighting it. He's, he's drawing out more meaning for us to see. Look at that verse again. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Now, whose job is it to bring justice in a nation like Israel or the surrounding nations? Whose job was it to bring justice? That was the job of a king. It's the king's job to make sure that everyone can sleep easy at night. It's the king's job to make sure that everyone has clean, clear drinking water and they're not going to die from what they drink. And yet, this king that Isaiah refers to will be a very different king than any other king. This king will also be a servant. 
In other words, he's going to do the work of a king. He's going to accomplish the work of a king. But he's going to use the methods of a servant. Look at verse 2. He will not shout or cry out. He will not shout or cry out. Now, is that the way today's political discourse proceeds? No shouting, no crying out. Don't you love that we're in another election season where each side tries to basically just drown the other side out? One ad tries to outshock and outshout the other side. What Isaiah says, or what God says, is my servant will not adopt the ways of the world. Okay? He won't engage in a war of words. And, and this is what Matthew points out in, in Matthew chapter 12. In that text, the Pharisees are very angry with Jesus because he has healed someone on the Sabbath, and they say, we want to get together and figure out a plan to kill Jesus. And what does Jesus do in that situation? Does he, does he confront them? Does he start to shout them down? Does he gather up popular opinion uh, more on his side, which he could have done at that time because he was very, very popular at that moment? No, that's not what he does at all. In fact, he takes his healing ministry and he goes underground. He heals where no one can see, and he says, if you do see, just keep things quiet, all right? Just don't tell anybody. He will not shout or cry out. And then in verse 3, our text speaks of his quiet ways. A bruised reed he, he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Now we, should, we should talk about those images a bit. When we think of that word bruised, um, what do you think of? I mean, I, I tend to think of something fairly, fairly superficial, right? I mean, what's the big deal about a bruise? Bananas get bruised, right? Your mom says, eat around it. It's not a big deal. Um, we used to pay, play slug bug in the back of the car, right? When we were kids, we had our kids do this as well. Every time you saw a Volkswagen Beetle, you got to pound on your sister or brother. And, and as a result, sometimes you did get a bruise, right? Um, but it was just a bruise, we would say. It's nothing serious. The, the Hebrew word, however, that's translated bruised here um, could probably better be described as blunt force trauma. In fact, it's often translated as crushed, okay? Crushed. Think of a crushed reed, a broken reed. You know, in my limited experience of flower arranging, um, I, I've not been very successful. You go out to the garden, you cut a bunch of stems, and you take them in the house, and you start to put them in a vase, and it never fails I, you know, I'm jamming him in there, and, and the, the stem breaks, and all of a sudden the flower is hanging like this. What happens at that point? It's, it's irreparable, all right? I'll tell you right now, just give up. There's nothing you can do. Even if the plant is living outside, and, and you bend it over or break the stem, it's done for. And yet, Jesus says that a bruised reed, I will not break. We're told here that, that the servant works so tenderly. 
and so gently with people that even the most fragile among us, He will not break. And those of us who are already broken, He will heal and repair. A smoldering wick, a smoking wick, one that's, there's no flame anymore, He will not put out. Now, I wish I could say that, but I can't. I mean, even as a pastor, um, I've worked with people who are, are, are bruised reeds. And I know that because they've told me the kinds of things that they've gone through. The thing is that there are still people who are bruised and I break them. I don't try, but it's a complicated thing, right? Working with bruised and broken people. You say the wrong word and it's too much. You don't say a word and it's not enough. And, it, and everyone is so different, right? Um, parents kind of know this. I remember, you know, trying to raise our own kids and how do you handle punishment, right? Well, you, you think, I need to be fair. I need to be fair how we handle punishment. And so you take the first kid and when they do something wrong, you put them on the quiet chair, right? And, and they're devastated by that. <clears throat> they don't like being taken out of their circle, right? Their social circle, their, their family, and they're isolated. They can't handle it. The next kid, they could care less, right? You put them on, they're hopping off and on, and they're singing songs, and you're like, this is not doing anything. Everyone is, is so different, and you can't treat them all the same way, and, and bruised reeds are like that. You can't apply one medicine to all sorts of different people. And yet Jesus says, a bruised reed I will not break. And I know that there are bruised reeds in this congregation. And some days you don't think you're going to make it. And that's when you need to remember. Remember what Jesus says. What we need to uh, remember about Jesus is he had a penchant for bruised reeds. And that's why he was always moving in the direction of outcasts. The lepers, the prostitutes, the doubters, the demon-possessed, the physically and mentally ill. And he always brought them just exactly what they needed. And when he did, they found life. Now think about the kings and the revolutionaries that you're aware of. Did they ever have time for the weak? No. Bruised reeds get trampled and smoldering wicks get rained on and all in the name of the cause. But Jesus was different because Jesus, Jesus was a servant. And because he worked at that floor level, because he was always down at that ground level, he always noticed the marginalized. They never escaped his notice. And he always pointed them out to his followers. Don't forget that. He always pointed them out to his followers, to his disciples. Do you see her? Do you see him? 
And we find that in this text as well. Look at God's calling to his servant. He calls him in verse 6 and 7 to be a light to the Gentiles, to open the eyes that are blind, to free the captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Aren't these the people that Jesus himself was always moving toward, always pointing out to his followers? These are the ones. Now, I think there's two reasons for that. I'll try and run through these fairly quickly. Two reasons for why Jesus is always going in this direction and always pointing, pointing them out to his followers. The first reason is that the servant is called to bring justice to the whole world. Okay? We hear that word justice in this text repeatedly. If you look at the text again, count how many times you read the word justice. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But for now, try and equate that word with the word shalom. Okay? Shalom is that state in which everything is the way it was supposed to be. Way back in the Garden of Eden. And in that garden, there were three relationships that were sort of primary, and those relationships were spoiled by the fall. The first relationship is a vertical relationship. It's a relationship with our God, right? And here lies the source of all of our brokenness in the world, all of the brokenness in the world, and that is we have lost our true God and our relationship with Him, and we have spent the rest of our days trying to fill His position with lesser candidates. That's the cause of all of our problems. God is not on His throne. Either we put ourselves there or a myriad of other things, but it's not God. But that's not the only problem. From that spoiled relationship comes also horizontal relationships that are spoiled, right? Our social relationships, even our, our psychological relationships. So our relationship to others and even to ourselves. We don't know how to see ourselves correctly. We're either filled with shame for ourselves or blame toward our neighbors. Something's got to be fixed. Finally, there's a relationship with our creation, which has also been spoiled. And we have shifted from the position of being stewards to owners, where we think it's ours. And therefore, we've gone from caretakers to abusers. I'll use it however I want. I'll get from it whatever I need. And what we're trying to get at, friends, is that the bruises that we suffer in this life are not just spiritual. They're not just spiritual. They are spiritual. Okay, that's the primary one. But the blindness isn't just spiritual blindness. It's physical blindness. The captivity isn't just spiritual captivity. It's, it's actual physical captivity. And into all of that, the Spirit is sent by Yahweh or the servant is spent sent by Yahweh, creator of the heavens and the earth, as the one who's going to heal it all. He's going to heal the social bruising, the political bruising, the environmental bruising, the emotional trauma, the cellular malfunction, the potholes in our streets. He's, gonna, he's going to heal it all. He came to make it right again, to put it back to how it's supposed to be. 
That's his mission. That's his job. It's a big mission. The second reason that he's always pointing us toward the outcasts, toward those on the margins, we often think it's because we have to help. We have to help others, and truly we do. <clears throat> but we forget that they can help us. And that might also be a reason that Jesus points us to the weak. They can help us. Uh, this is a strange example, but bear with me, okay? Just ask yourself, why does God give us babies? Why don't we just start with 12-year-olds? I mean, babies are what? They're all need, right? They're all demand and no supply. They take over your life. They give you nothing. You just have to give and give and give to them. But now think about this. Think about who God gives babies to. If you're in this group, at least, think about your first child, okay? I'll think about my first child, what I was like at that time. I rarely thought of anybody else. I kind of thought I was the center of my own world. I was overly confident. I felt little compassion for others. And all of a sudden, God gives you this little baby who can't do anything. And for the first time in your life, perhaps, you feel compassion and you feel protective and you feel like you need to provide for someone else besides yourself. And maybe for the first time in your life, you begin to see that life isn't all about you, that maybe there's a purpose beyond you. And that little child sort of opens up your world and changes who you are. And I think that's what God has in mind. When he gives you a child, he kind of says, okay, this is where you start. Now, now look around and see how many others there are out there. Grow from here. Grow. Don't stay the same. Jesus keeps pointing us to people on the margins because he wants us to change. He wants us to be more like him. He really does. He doesn't just want to be our ticket to heaven. He wants us to be like him, to be with him to do what he does, to be where he goes, to be more like God, more like the servant who will bring justice to the earth. Which brings us to verse 4 and this word justice, okay? He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. Now, what you hear there is that Jesus isn't all quietness and gentleness, is he? There's sort of a relentlessness about him. He will not quit. 
until he accomplishes what he has set out to do, until he establishes justice right here on the earth. Now, to understand the difference between doing that as a king and doing that as a servant, I think we really have to understand this concept of justice or mishpat, as it's called in, in, the, in the original language, mishpat. Usually, friends, when you and I think of justice, we tend to think of what's called retributive justice, right? Think of the word retribution. That's retributive justice. It's sort of a payback. It's like when a crime is committed, justice is rendered in the form of punishment, right? That's justice to us. Law and order, crime and punishment, justice. Um, country music star Toby Keith died last week. And uh, in honor of him, I spent a lot of time listening to country music again um, in the past week. And I was amazed at, at how much Toby Keith sings about justice. All right, I won't bore you with too many songs, but here's just one example. Grandpappy told my pappy back in my day, son, a man had to answer for the wicked that he'd done. Take all the rope in Texas, find a tall oak tree, round up all of them bad boys, and hang them high in the street for all the people to see. Now, what kind of justice is he talking about there? He's talking about retributive justice, right? Punishment, people getting what they deserve, but getting what they deserve in the form of punishment. And, and really, that's the kind of justice that fills his songs, because that's sort of the justice that we think is primary justice as, as Americans. And, and Mishpat is justice in that sense, okay? Justice is when everyone gets what they deserve. When everyone gets what they deserve. And when we commit a crime or break God's commands, we should be punished. That's what we have coming. That's what we deserve. What we don't seem to understand is that there is more to justice. We deserve more than just punishment in life. And, and that's a broader, bigger picture of justice that especially the prophets, well, all of Scripture come at us with. Um, because we deserve good things as well. The good things that God intended for us when He made us. Love and joy and food and freedom and safety all the goods of God's creation. He intended them for all of us, for all people. And establishing that kind of justice, that's a much harder thing to achieve than punishment. Okay? Think about that. Think of it in terms of Hollywood. When Hollywood puts on a film about justice, what kind of justice is it? I mean, 99 out of 100 times, it's retributive justice. Um, I, think, I always think of the film Taken, right? Um, so Liam Neeson's daughter is kidnapped and she's sold into the sex trades and she's being abused. And what does he do? He takes a gun and he goes out and kills everybody who's involved. And that's the movie. That's the end. Justice is served, right? That's a pretty easy film to make. It doesn't take a lot of creativity to write a film like that. Now... Think if you had to write a film or produce a film about biblical justice 
and what that looks like. Where does it start? What does it look like in your family? What does it look like in your marriage and how you raise your children? What is a picture of how you eat a meal around the kitchen table or the dining room table? Is there, is there shalom happening there? Is there justice happening there? Um, we heard about ASJ again last week, Association for a Must, More Just Society, and what they're going through in Honduras right now. I was looking on their website. One of the things they have done recently is asked um, all of their employees the question, what does justice sound like to you? What does it sound like to you? And these are people who are engaged in, in this ministry of trying to bring justice into the world. And so um, the first one was a woman who spends most of her time dealing with uh, abused children physically and sex, sexually and, and that kind of thing. And her answer to that question, what does justice sound like? It sounds like children's laughter. Children's laughter. Other answers were a bustling marketplace, belly laughs, proud shouts, children's singing. Those are all shalom words, friends. And that's a much more difficult film to produce. And so Hollywood doesn't bother. And many, to many governments, it's not practical to pursue, and so they don't. But to Jesus, to the servant, he says, I will not stop until I have established that kind of justice on the earth. I will not stop. There was, um, you're hearing a little too much about my life this morning, <clears throat> but uh, maybe some of you know John Stewart returned to The Daily Show uh, this past week. If you're not familiar with The Daily Show, it's kind of, comedy, political, um, political commentary as well. And uh, he was talking, of course, about the elections coming up, and, uh, and yet he, he sort of ended this way, and it struck me as I was thinking about justice. He said, the work of making this world better, or no, excuse me, the work of making this world resemble one that you would prefer to live in, what's he talking about? Justice, shalom. The work of making this world resemble one that you would prefer to live in is a lunch pail job, day in and day out, where thousands of committed, anonymous, smart, and dedicated people bang on closed doors and pick up those that are fallen and grind away on issues until they get a positive result, and even then they have to stay on to make sure that that result holds what does that sound like? He will not falter and he will not be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. It's a lunch pail kind of job and that's the kind of servant is Jesus. And yet there's more to Jesus than, than a relentlessness there's more to him than perseverance. You have to look at the servant's heart as well. 
Um, what kind of person does it take to establish this kind of justice on the earth? Verse 4 again says, He will not falter or be discouraged. And I bring it up again because the words there, the verbs actually are quite fascinating. He will not falter or be discouraged. What the author is doing is simply taking the verbs that came out of verse 3 and he's applying them in verse 4. So bruised reed, um, smoldering wick, those are the words for falter and discouraged. In other words, what he is saying is that the servant is going to be bruised and he's going to be a smoldering wick and yet it will not stop him from bringing the justice that God wants him to bring. In other words, he will suffer what it takes. He will suffer to bring justice. Suffering will not stop him. Before we end, I just want to make a comment about that word bruising again. Bruising is a well-traveled theme in Scripture. Um, Tim Keller points out that it goes all the way back to Genesis 3. All the way back to God's message to the serpent in the garden after the fall. Maybe you remember the words. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. And this is the way I learned it. And he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Anyone else learn it like that? He will crush your head, you will bruise his heel. Um, if you know that line, know that verse, you probably remember it, or you might remember it as what's called the Proto-Evangelium. It's uh, Latin for the first gospel. Um, the gospel before the gospel. This is the first announcement of the promise of what Jesus is going to do, that he's going to deliver his people and, and here's what Keller said um, about this, <clears throat> and it struck me because I had exactly the same, the same thought. Um, he says, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. And, and Keller says, you know, I've always had this idea in my mind of that scene where, where Jesus, or the, um, yeah, Jesus, the son of, of Eve, is going to stamp on the snake's head and, and maybe in the process of stamping on his head, he might hurt his heel a little bit too, right? He might bruise his heel a little bit. But what? But it's no big deal. And that's exactly how I used to think about that text as well. You know, he's going to crush the serpent, and the serpent might, might break the skin, but that's about all. And then I began looking more closely at the verbs there, and the verb is exactly the same in both lines. He will crush your head and you will crush his heel. I saw a late night newscast <clears throat> and they had a story out of Florida. It seems like all the stories on late night news come out of Florida. I'm not sure why that is. But they had a shot of a little girl coming out into the backyard and um, 
there was a snake out there. I don't know what kind it was, a python or something like that. And it had her little dog or cat. Um, and, and she immediately, in order to protect her pet, she grabbed the snake by the tail and started swinging it over her head like this until it let go of the, of the dog or whatever it was. And then she kind of threw the, the snake down in the yard. And then right after that, her dad comes outside and he sees her there and he sees this big snake and he picks up the snake by the tail and starts swinging it around. I don't know if this is something you learn in Florida schools or what. Um, this is snake catching 101. Uh, but he takes the snake and he swings it and, and he ends up throwing it out the backyard. And everybody's safe. And then it kind of clicks. This picture that we're getting in Genesis, right? Oh, the Son of Man comes and he sees the people he loves in danger. And he goes to stamp on the snake and he crushes its head. But at the same time, he's bitten and crushed himself a death blow. And that's what he did. He was willing to suffer to make everything in this world right again. And when we see that kind of love, that tender kind of love that would get down on its knees in order not to bruise us, not to hurt us, but to heal us, when we see that, how can we not, how can we not turn and look at others and love them with that same kind of tender love? That's God's plan to bring shalom into this world again. It's through the servant and through the servant's love making us into the people of the servant. Let's come to that servant's table this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in this bread and in this wine, we look forward to meeting with you again. And as we do, we pray that you would communicate to us once more who you really are. That you are indeed the Lord's servant, the suffering servant. By the power of your Holy Spirit, come to us now. In Jesus' name, amen.